You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Hi, everyone. So this is part two. It's a three-part discussion with a good friend of mine, Abel Wong. Uh, he's a senior cloud developer advocate at, at Microsoft, and I think you'll find his discussion very interesting. Uh, part three is coming right up. I, I think this kind of, this kind of, well, now we're touching a little bit on the hypothos- hi, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> hypothetical-driven development there. I can say it. Okay. Um, yeah. But but it's like it's like Microsoft spends a lot of time saying, okay, we, we're making a guess here. We think that this new feature is needed. Let's get this out as soon as we can, and we're going to know we're successful if this condition is true. Otherwise, we're not going to pursue it further. And they spend a lot of time thinking about what success means and how to quantify it. Yes. So this is really interesting too, because and and I don't I don't have a source in front of me right now, but if you Google this, you can find this. This isn't a Microsoft thing. This is just industry wide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we know for a fact that when you run experiments, um, a third of them are going to be highly successful. Like you nailed it. Customers love it. Provides huge amounts of impact. Provides the value that they need. A third of them are kind of like, eh, whatever. People can take it or leave it. And a third of them, you are just flat out wrong, right? You assume completely wrong. This is so bad. You have customers that are like, if you don't change it back, we're going to just. Negative value. Yes, right. Just in the fact that we're adding features that are little or never used, let alone our customers hating it. So it's about a third, a third, a third, right? Yeah. So what is really, since everything we do is a third, a third, a third, Instead of just blindly picking a feature and saying, we're going to go all in on this, what we do at Microsoft is we run a bunch of little experiments, right? We start, uh, we, we start implementing some stuff. We're, we collect a lot of telemetry. So now we can know, do people love it? Are they ambivalent or do they hate it? If they hate it, guess what? We're going to abandon it. If they're ambivalent, what can we do? Why is it, is it ambiv- are they ambivalent? Is it because the feature is too far buried or something? There's a little more research needs to happen. But the coolest thing is, the third that are highly successful, guess what? Those now we can double down on those and really go in those directions. And and when we're experimenting, we can still experiment along the lines of these successes. So all of a sudden, our success rates for our experiments become far more than just a third, right? Because because of what we're doing and all the analysis that we're doing. So then it gets better and better. And over time, you start nailing successes way more than your failures. And think about it. That's a so such a cheap way of saying we're going to increase our, our basically you're adding, um, you're multiplying your firepower by three times if you do oh. it that way. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because now your developers are working on features that customers are actually going to use and you can quantify it. Yep, 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 absolutely. I, yeah. I remember so many times I was working on projects and um, we had a very strong um, BSA or a project manager and they insisted that this was a needed feature and I knew you know you just kind of felt like we were gold plating it right it would have been would have been so nice to have like you know a go no go decision that was based on quantifiable data and usage mhm absolutely absolutely i've seen as uh, i've seen numbers out there that as many as 80% of features are unused or little used um, we don't seem to have a very good industry wide handle like a number on how much of our, the code that we write is going completely to waste. <laughs> but it seems like that one-third, 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 that's about accurate. 
That's uh, like I said, this isn't a Microsoft number. That's actually an industry-wide number. And the, the fact that you said 80% of uh, features people don't use, uh, that doesn't surprise me one bit. I mean, if you think about the way, well, if I think about the way how I've written software for the majority of my career, this whole experimentation, we didn't know about that. We just came up with an idea and we, we would spend a year writing it. And then once we were done writing it, we'd throw it over the wall and be like, all right, people, buy it. Right. I mean, <laughs> what did we know? Oh, well, right. Maybe we interviewed some people. I mean, that's come on. Let's get real. Right. So. So, yeah, I, I when the first time I heard about this experimental method and then gathering telemetry to figure out whether people are actually using it or whether people like it or not, that was that kind of blew my mind. That really changed a whole that changed a massive amount for me. And it seems like uh, we kind of hmm, it's, it's an interesting question there. Um, because a lot of times um, we are in a hurry, uh, the project needs to be done by this date, and uh, things like monitoring and telemetry comes in last place, if at all. And so it's like, sorry, we, we can't afford the $1,000 a month this is going to cost us to monitor. Sorry, can't do that. So here's my uh, answer to that, right? Because you're right. There are a couple of things that traditionally people love to shove until the end to do, right? Unit testing is one of them, and telemetry is the other. And when people do that and shove it to the end to do, guess what never gets done? The unit tests and the telemetry. Right? So the only way you can be successful is in, well, not the only way, but the, let me tell you how we do it at Microsoft, right? or at least the team that I'm on. Our definition of done literally says, you can't just implement the user story. You have to implement the user story. You have to implement a full set of unit tests and not bogus unit tests, real unit tests for your user story. On top of that, if you need any type of automated UI test, make sure those are in there as well. And one last thing, this user story is not considered done until all of those things are done and telemetry is implemented. And until all those things are done, you are not allowed to ship it. Hmm. End of story. So what this makes us do when we are prioritizing our backlog and we're breaking down work and we're trying to figure out or we try to you know, ballpark, I think it's going to take me X amount of time to do this, right? So we can do this in this sprint. When we do that, our thinking isn't just, it's going to take me X amount of time to implement the user story. It's okay. It's going to take me X amount of time to implement the user story. Plus, I'm going to need to write unit tests for it. I'm going to write some automated UI test. And also, I'm going to need to write telemetry. So added all that together, it's going to take me, I don't know, five weeks to do total. Right. And we don't sugarcoat it. We just say, bam, this is going to take five weeks to do. Um, management. Loves to look at that and be like, oh, is there anything you can do to make it go, just make it faster? Right. And the answer is no. Right. So depending on, this is interesting too as well. So at Microsoft, our backlog, at the backlog level, only our team can look at that. Um, the management, like the management, they're not allowed to look at the backlog level. They have to look at it one level higher, right? So they don't get to see all the nitty gritty details. So they literally don't get to see us break down the work of saying, you know, four hours to implement uh, right. the user story, five hours to implement the unit test. They don't see that. If they, they can see, see that level of detail, they'll try to cut it as fat. And it's not fat, it's muscle. It's not fat. So we just tell them nine hours. And 
they'll ask all the time, anything you can cut? No. And that's just the way it is. Um, when you do it like that, so traditionally developers have hated writing unit tests or telemetry and all that stuff as well, because we never have, we're never given the adequate amount of time to do it. But here's the thing, when you're breaking your work down and you're estimating, stick those times in because this stuff is vital, right? Uh, user stories without unit test, I always compare that to a house without building the foundation. Sure, you can build it, but it's probably gonna fall over pretty quickly, right? Um, so do it right, build, do, do it the right way, but make sure you have the time to do it as well. Uh, so I'm not saying lie to upper management, but there's a lot of details that they don't need to know. Yes. Yeah, it's like we, we call ourselves engineers, but software engineering is a very young industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in the civil engineering field, you would never quote, well, you know, we need this and this. And then for testing the bridge, you're going to need to have this. Well, let's trim that testing. Right. You would yeah. never do that. You would never take shortcuts on materials. No. And, you, and you, so you, our, our, the way that we provide specs, we're trying so many times we try to please project managers by saying, well, we can, might be able to get done by this date. And that means there goes unit testing. There goes telemetry. Yeah, we can't exactly. be doing that. We and just can't you, be putting ourselves in that position because we're not in the end. We're not going to make friends that way. No, you, you absolutely can't. Um, because, yes, you can kill yourself, not write the unit test, not write the telemetry, make the date. Mm -hmm. You know what? That project manager is not going to love you anymore because the very next time there's a deadline, they're going to want the same thing. And in fact, they're going to start expecting that. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, the project managers. You, it's very easy to train project managers into believing that developers are just wizards and no matter how outlandish they ask, they will make it happen. Because guess what? That's usually what we do, right? Um, I, I remember early in my software career, you know, it was not uncommon at all to be in projects where most of the time we were in modes where we're just like, you're sleeping at the office, you're putting in crazy amounts right. of time to meet right. deadlines. Uh, clearly not very healthy, right? But that was just kind of what we did. That was kind of what was expected. And of course, burnout was massive and people would lose their minds and just completely fall apart. And and on top of that, the code that gets written is complete crap as well, right? That's a yeah. whole different, different story. Um, but that's, that's, that's what ends up happening. And then, you know, as developers, we keep on wondering, why does management keep on giving us these completely unreasonable deadlines? And the answer is because, well, because we always make it. By hook or by crook, we make it. So it's kind of the developer's job now. We have to draw the line and say, no, we're going to do it the right way. And it's going to take us this amount of time. And no, there's nothing you can cut from that. You can cut features. That's the only thing you can cut. You can cut features. You can say, if it must be deployed and done at this particular date, I can't get these three features done. But you know what? If you take out this feature, we can get these two features done in that time frame. That's the only thing we can do. But no, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to cut out unit tests or telemetry or anything like that. So many times that there's a, a negative. There's kind of a payoff in being a hero, right? A short-term benefit <laughs> from that, and then a long-term pain. Because um, yep. <laughs> we we kill ourselves and all we made our date. Uh, yep. And Donovan Brown, he had a really good post on like stop stop thinking that quality is something that can shift in that project management quadrahedron, whatever we call it. It's features, time, and money, and then dates. Any one of those three things can move, but not quality. You know, stop doing that because we're, we're cutting our own throat with it. 
Yes. Yeah. And yeah, quality is something you, you it's non-negotiable, right? I remember I was at, uh, I can't remember what company it was. It was some oil and gas company. And it just so happened the day that I was there, the CEO was making this big speech. And part of his big speech, he was just saying over and over again, for this year, quality is going to be our number one goal. And I was like, oh, right. That's awesome. Now, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Okay, but you just said quality is your number one goal. And that's, I remember turning to my team um, and, and, and actually not to my team of devs, because like you said, the engineers and devs, they buy into this really easily. It's upper management. And I looked at the management and I said, look, your CEO just said quality is a top priority. And guess what? Quality has a price. What is that price? The price is the time it takes to write these unit tests, right? The, it, it used to be quality is the time it takes to run our end-to-end -end functional testing. In today's world, nobody has the time to do that, right? End-to-end -end functional testing takes weeks, months. Um, if it's something as big as Windows, it could even take years to actually run them all the way through, right? So uh, to, to pay for quality now, you have to pay your developers to write really, really good unit tests, uh, to write automated UI tests, to do integration tests, to do their testing within the pipeline, things like that, right? So quality has a cost and we have to be willing to pay it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a tax we have to pay. Exactly. I love that. Yep. And you know what? You can say the same thing for other stuff as well. Same as security, right? So security, uh, I think, and, and I know the, the enterprise world moves at a much slower pace than than like the, the bubble that I live in, because I kind of live in this little DevOps bubble, this, this you know, the best of DevOps bubble. So So it's, my world is a little bit different than the industry, and I know the industry and the enterprise they move at a at a much slower pace and much slower pace to change. Um, but even in the enterprise, right, we, we, I'm starting to see less resistance towards the idea of yes, we have to write massive amounts of unit tests and have them in the pipelines, things like that. People are starting to get that this is needed, whether they do it or not, is something else. But they're starting to get that th these are important things to do. Um, but more and more recently, I'm starting to see people talk about security, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's always like database. And then after database, people start realizing, oh, security. How do we handle security? You know, back in the day, we would have security audits. So you'd wait until you'd wait until the project was basically ended. And then you'd spend months doing a security audit of the code. Security team gives its blessing, hooray for that, ship it. You know, nobody has the time to do that anymore. So what do you do? So then this whole idea of DevSecOps comes into... into uh, Terrible word. It's horrible. a horrible word because basically it's DevOps. But a security person said to me, and I thought this was perfect. She said to me, yes, it's a stupid word, but I'm going to keep on saying this until people start implementing security in their pipelines. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Fair enough. Until Fair enough. Until Let's not people, quibble over semantics, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that actually we don't makes, really have a better term that I've seen. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, I, I, and it's great because she was like, once people start doing this all the time, great, I'll stop saying the phrase and it's just part of DevOps. But right now in the DevOps world, not enough people are adding security within their pipelines, within their workflows. Uh, and and it's absolutely needed. I can't needed. get the answer to that on Apple Watch. Oops, totally. Yeah, that's okay. So, I mean, and th this is interesting because you think about the, the engineer, the practitioner, we're dumping a lot on his plate. We're saying, hey, now you need to think about security. Yep. Oh, and you need to think about release management. Yep. Oh, and you're in charge of the data layer as well. 
And is there anything else we can we can dump on this this poor schmo's plate? Um, um, I'm sure so it's, it's quite a bit. Um, it this goes to do security right is far beyond you know just the basics. Yes. Um, it, so here, to me, it's like we're starting to talk a little bit more than about partitioning work so that we're delivering um, our services like microservices and very small pieces because the less functionality, the less we have to worry about from a security data layer. All, mm -hmm. the, all those things that can be really crippling with a yep. traditional app. Yep, yep, yep. That's why microservices are so awesome, right? They, they simplify, they simplify so much, right? Just if you just think about the deployment alone, um, that simplifies tremendously. Instead of deploying this massive monu monolithic application, um, you just deploy one little service, one function, Azure function or something like that, right? Um, much, much, much easier to do, and you know, if you think about how we used to deploy stuff, this big monolith, we would try to deploy it as little as possible because every time we deployed it, everything would break, right? Right. So we would end up having like, oh, let's only deploy once a year because then we only have to feel the pain once a year. But that pain was horrendous. But if you're deploying all the time, and especially if you're deploying little small microservices and you're deploying all the time, all of a sudden, because you're doing it all the time, things don't break because you've already tested it through your pipeline. You're doing this week in, week out. It's it's just it's just muscle memory by then, right? It literally is just click a button and it just happens. That whole idea of, oh, don't deploy new code on Friday because then it will break on the weekend, it starts <laughs> it's still in play, of course, but it's it's it becomes less and less because deploying is no longer a big deal. It's something that just happens all the time. Your, your blog had a really good article just recently on microservices and building it into Azure DevOps, for example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned hey, integration tests, they're, they're brittle and take a long, long time to run. So with unit testing, good unit testing, it becomes even more important with a microservice because we could break a lot of things with these. It moves the... Um, there's so many things we could break when you're talking about an orchestration of all these little services interacting. Yes, yes, yes. There's... um. So it's pretty interesting when you're dealing with microservices, right? Because um, everything everybody has heard about microservices is that they're super easy to deploy independently. And, you know, that's one of their biggest benefit is, is they're little independent things that you can just manipulate on their own. The problem is people and people end up doing is, is they immediately write a, a microservice based application with all these little microservices and they throw it out there. And at first it's great, right? They make one little change. They throw out the, the one microservice and they're like, this is amazing. This is awesome. And then they start realizing that, oh, wow, there's dependencies between my microservices. Mm -hmm. And then they start realizing, oh, crap. Now, the order in which I'm deploying my services, that starts to matter. Because if A depends on B, I better deploy B first before I deploy A, right? Things like that. Um, and then all of a sudden, their pipeline starts getting really crazy. And then they realize, wow, you know what? We can't deploy them independently. We have to deploy this like a monolith because our code is <laughs> it's not it's not written in a way to support it, right? But this is this actually makes perfect sense. This is a common common journey. Mm -hmm. So what I what I tell people is no problem. Deploy it as a monolith for now, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody makes one change, deploy the entire thing out because your services are not set up in a way where you can actually deploy independently. So you, so in order to do that, now you have to write code in your services 
to be able to handle it, right? So for instance, your services need to be able to talk to each other and query each other to say, hey, what version are you on? And when they reply back, they can say, I'm on version three. And then myself as a service that asked that, I can say, oh, you're on version three, you're not on version four. Well, let me use version three code to query you and let me turn off my version four functionality because clearly you can't use it, right? So that involves extra code that you have to write feature switching that you can put into your code, right? It's a lot of complexity that you're adding into your code, more tax. However, this is one of those times where I think the tax, the complexity is less than the complexity that you would have in terms of trying to manage all of these independent services yourself. Because once you have that in place, yeah, now you can literally deploy whichever service you want at any point in time and it won't affect it as well. And of course, we're touching on some pretty advanced DevOps topics now, like you know, mm -hmm. feature, feature flagging and querying for versions, um, testing in production, uh, even rolling back codes just by flipping feature flags, things like that as well. But really, really cool stuff. Um, but again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is you do things one step at a time one step at a time. Because I know if that very first microservice app that I wrote, if someone threw in there along with it, you need to figure out how to make sure your your services are truly independent no matter what version they get they, they, they get bumped up to and all of that good stuff, my brain would have exploded all at once, right? It, it do one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because uh, going into the book I thought, well Microservices is for Amazon and you know large enterprises with thousands mm -hmm. of developers, and um, I I kind of came around on that because I talked to uh, uh, there was a five talents Ryan Coming dares his name he's the CTO and he said yeah. Dave we couldn't this is a very this is not a large development shop maybe under 100 developers he's like we couldn't survive without microservices he said for me if you're an enterprise it's almost mandatory. Uh, because now you're having very small teams. He says, our reusability just shot through the roof because now we get like, oh, you want to use our user service? Here it is. You don't have to rewrite it. It delivers what SOA promised, you know, that we can, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Um, but the whole thing about being able to, when you when you change the contract, not not interrupting your, the other end independent services that are depending on this, right? They're mm -hmm. uh, with a contract. Susan Fowler had a great book on that where she said, just pull these guys into a room with a whiteboard, you know, and, and walk through it. And that's the best way you can really kind of, have you really thought this out? Are, you know, will you be disrupting things more than you're, you're helping? Um, so I think my, I've come around a little bit on microservices because they're not a, they're not a silver bullet. It does push your your governance needs, you know, higher. But in a way, it, it if you have large legacy apps, it's a great way of implementing Martin Fowler's Strangler Fig pattern. Yeah, yep, yep. I'm actually a big fan of microservices, um, and they're not. It doesn't necessarily make the code easier, which I think is a misconception. Um, I think when you write microservice code, when you do it correctly. Uh, you're adding quite a bit of complexity. Um, but again, again, it's one of those times where complexity, it's this is well worth the price, right? The, 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 the price of the tax is so much cheaper than the price of the, the nonsense you'd have to pay if you just had that giant monolithic app. Yeah, and, and think about if you have to add people onto the, the project, 
you're slowing up and you need to make your dates, you can do that with a microservice a little easier. There's less to to learn and ramp up on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you, one of the things I love about your writing on the blog, you talk a lot about an, an application that I love to launch darkly. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about feature flags or toggles, as some people call them? Yeah, so feature flags is actually one of my most favorite things uh, <laughs> around fairly recently. I mean, I guess feature flags have been around for a while, but I, I didn't get introduced to them until fairly recently. But basically, think of a feature flag as a glorified if statement. And actually, let me rephrase that. It's not a glorified if statement. It is literally an if statement. You have, let's say you have a database of some sort that holds the values of this feature is either on or this feature is off, right? And it can be more complex than that. But at, most, at the most basic layer is you have a list of things where a list that tells you if a feature is on or off. And your if statement is just literally, if the feature is on, run this code, else run this code, right? So by having this, you are now able to, on the fly, while the app has been deployed and running, you can turn features on and off, right? That becomes crazy, crazy powerful for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you implement feature flags, right? If every new feature that you write, you have it wrapped behind a feature flag. What that means is now you have decoupled your physical deployment of the code from the deployment of your feature, right? So you can deploy the code, the feature flag is off, nobody sees the new code. You can Facebook them. Facebook does this religiously. They're they like, listen, do. every every feature for the next six months is already out there. We just haven't turned it on yet. Yep. We do that too. With Azure DevOps, yeah. every feature, new, every new thing that we wrap, do is wrapped in a feature flag. So huge benefits from this, right? Like I said, you've now separated the, the physical deployment of your code from the actual deployment of the feature when people actually see it. A couple things that you can do with this. Number one rollbacks become incredibly easy, right? You flip the feature on, people start using it. Oh my God, sites go, it's completely broken. Turn the feature flag off. Bam, you've rolled back, right? Very, very powerful, very useful. The other thing that you can do is you have the ability to turn the feature flag on for groups of people as opposed to every single person in the world. So that starts giving you the ability of being able to test new features in production. And this is vital, right? Testing in production is absolutely vital, and I'll tell you why. Usually when I say testing in production, there's gonna be one person in the room, at least one if not more, who look at me like I'm freaking insane. And they're just like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) To which I'll reply to them, no. We always test in production, even when we didn't have feature flags. Because, sure, we have our dev environment, we have our test environment, but answer me this, how many times Have you been in a company where your test environment was 100% exactly the same as your production environment? I can tell you that answer. The answer is zero. I have never zero. You cannot simulate production loading. Yes. So at that point in time, you are testing in production. Um, (laughs) I'm glad you brought up production loading as well, because this is very, very interesting. So with Azure DevOps, you know how we have... Uh, how we basically deploy uh, rings at a time, right? So we've gotten this down now to, uh, Azure DevOps serves the entire world. So we have like a zillion copies of it running everywhere um, to service different parts of the world. 
we can spin up these rings really, really quickly. We've got that down. It's basically, I was going to say, it's a PowerShell script. It's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> but, but, you know, we've got that down. We have a test environment that we spin up, that we run our tests in as well. However, you know what we, so this is literally the exact same infrastructure as what's in production, but it's still not the same because no matter what type of tools that we use, you cannot generate the type of load that you get from a real world example. You just can't, no matter how you try to simulate. And believe me, we've tried everything and we've spent ridiculous amounts of money that only Microsoft can to try to solve this problem. We realize, wow, you just can't create that identical environment. So you're gonna be testing in production anyway. So if you're gonna be testing in production anyway, why not test it behind a feature flag where you can open it slowly incrementally to small group of people, a little bit bigger group of people at a time to minimize the damage if bad code gets shipped, which guess what? It's gonna happen. happen. Yes. Yeah, so So we're all testing in production anyway. So people don't realize, especially management layer, how powerful that is. Instead of like being an on off where it's like, we're broken, let's try to roll back. Oh oh crap, we can't get the data layer, We're, we're host. I've had those cold sweat moments. You have too. Mm-hmm. Being able to kind of slowly turn on the hose where we're just seeing how it goes and then being able to turn it off at whim, that's incredibly powerful. That's hugely powerful. And then the next thing that happens, I, I have like a whole hour talk just on feature flag. That, that's how much I love them. So the next thing somebody always says to me is, oh, we didn't design our app for feature flags. So it's, it'll take too long, so we just can't do it this sprint. And you know what, We're if, I, if they don't do it this sprint, they're never gonna do it, right? And my answer to them is no. If you can write an if statement, you can write a feature flag. So what that means is your app doesn't have to be designed any special way, you can add feature flags in. And in fact, start now. I don't expect you to wrap all your old features in feature flags. That's already been shipped. Just any new feature. This is part of your definition of done. Anything new that you do, wrap it in a flag. And sometimes, you know what? It does change the way you code a little bit, but for the better. It's kind of like those teams, you know, once they start writing unit tests, it forces you to write your code in a different way. It actually forces you to write your code in a much better way, much cleaner way. So, So you get some added benefits that way. But the point that I'm trying to make is feature flags is ridiculously easy to implement. It's just an if statement. So if you're not implementing feature flags, any new feature we have, just do it. Next It's question. a lot like monitoring. It's yeah. a lot yeah. like, um, you know, like, like uh, telemetry. It's like, just take an afternoon and do yeah. it. Just and do then it. make it a part of your daily habit. And it's not nearly as hard as you think. And in fact, no, it's, exactly. feature yeah. flags is even easier than telemetry. <laughs> Um, especially with the tools that they have out there. So a lot of times people ask me, what tools do you use to do to do your feature flagging, right? Um, there's some open source tools. I'm a big fan of using LaunchDarkly. Uh, LaunchDarkly is not Microsoft. They're a complete separate company. And they are a feature flag service as a service, right? Uh, but they have a great system. It works great. So I, I use it for all of, I use my own personal apps. I use LaunchDarkly all the time. So what a great talk we had with Abel. Uh, This was part two. We're going to continue with part three, a little more discussion about feature flags and Dynatrace. Uh, Coming right up, part three. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.